Warning, the following contains spoilers pertaining to the show and subject matter discussed. Also, strong language and adult content may be included. Listener discretion is advised. Thank you. Got everything you wanted? And then some. I'm so glad we found this shop. Enchantment seems to be a pretty cool place. So, where to next? There's this great little record shop that's like a hole in the wall around the corner that I really want to check out. Okay. Cool. I think I bought more than enough records there. Of course you did. Should we maybe go grab a bite to eat? Yes. Where do you want to go? I don't know. Should we just wander down to 2nd or 1st Avenue and just see what's there and jumps out? Sounds good to me. Man, the Lower East Side has come a really long way since the time of Jonathan Larson. Tell me about it. Not sure we'd be wandering around here looking for a place to eat if it were back in the New York of the 90s. It's pretty hard to believe that just 10 to 15 years ago, this place was full of drug addiction, homelessness, and an epicenter of the AIDS epidemic. It really is. But the artistic sense of the world, the Lower East Side of the days of yore, still exists. I feel like all the shops and restaurants have barely aged. It still has that bohemian feel to it. I guess it's pretty fitting that we're down here today experiencing all of this before tonight's show. What can I say? Good planning. Agreed. Hey, what about this place? Cacio Ivino. Absolutely. This looks awesome. I can already taste the penny vodka. Well, then let's get a table so we can make it back home to drop all this off before the show. Welcome to Stage Whisper. I'm your host, Hope Bird, and with me is my co-host, Andrew Cortez. Today we are going to be discussing the landmark show, Rent. So hurry and take your seats. It looks like the show is starting. Hello, everyone. And welcome into today's performance of Stage Whisper. Today we are going to take you back to the artistic world of the Lower East Side of the New York in the 90s, to the bohemian revolutionary musical known as Rent. The first stop on our adventure is the year 1988. In 1988, playwright Billy Arosun wanted to create a musical based on the opera La Boheme that features the coarseness and noise of a modern New York City. 
He began a collaboration with Jonathan Larson, then 29, that would lead them to create Santa Fe Splatter, which would then be reworked into Rent, and I Should Tell You. It was after this that Larson pitched the idea of setting the play in an impoverished, queer, homeless world of the East Village neighborhood, which happened to be the neighborhood Larson lived in. He also came up with the title Rent at this time, which was a displeasure to Arosin. In 1991, he asked Aronson if he could use the original concept and make Rent his own. Larson's dream was to create a musical aimed at the MTV generation. The pair came to an agreement that if the show ever made it to Broadway, Aronson would be credited with original concept and additional lyrics and would share in the proceeds. Over the course of a few years, Larson would write hundreds of songs and make many changes to the show. In the fall of 1992, Larson finished his work with 42 songs in total and would approach James Nicola, the artistic director of the New York Theater Workshop, and soon they would have a staged reading by March of 1993. The show is loosely based on Giacomo Puccini's 1896 opera La Boheme. The show was first workshopped in 1993 and later opened off-Broadway in 1996 at New York Theater Workshop. Each of the characters' names and the characters are based on characters from La Boheme, such as Musetta equals Maureen. Other parallels include Your Eyes, the song from Rent, that draws melodic content straight from Musetta's Waltz from La Boheme. At this point, we should talk about the team that assembled to bring Rent to the Great White Way. The set would be by Paul Clay, costumes by Angela Went, hair and makeup consultant David Santana, lights by Blake Burba, and sound by Kurt Fischer. The music, lyrics, and book were all written by Jonathan Larson. The choreography was done by Morales Yerby, and all of the ideas were funneled together by the director, Michael Grief. It's worth noting that during the developmental process of the show, Lynn Thompson, a dramaturg, sued Larson's estate for $40 million and sought 16% of the show's royalties for her part in reworking Rent with Jonathan Larson while the show was at New York Theater Workshop. She claimed that she and Larson equally co-wrote the new version, The judge ruled against her when she could not recall the lyrics to the songs that she allegedly wrote, nor the structures of the libretto she claimed to have created. The show would have its workshop and off-Broadway run at the New York Theater Workshop. On January 24, 1996, after the musical's final dress rehearsal before its off-Broadway opening, Larson had his first and only newspaper interview with music critic Anthony Tomasini, of the New York Times. Attracted by the coincidence that the show was debuting exactly 100 years after Puccini's opera. Jonathan Larson died suddenly the night before the show's off-Broadway premiere of an aortic dissection, which essentially means an injury to the innermost layer of the aorta that allows blood flow, uh, blood to flow between layers of the aortic wall, which forces the layers apart. Friends and family gathered at New York Theater Workshop, and the first preview of Rent became a sing-through of the musical in Larson's memory. The show quickly gained wide success and popularity, fueled by rave reviews surrounding the shows and the news around the death of the show's creator, 
Rent quickly moved uptown. Uptown indeed, to Broadway. The show would be housed at the Nederlander Theater and open on April 29, 1996. It would play for 12 years and 5,123 performances until its closing day on September 7, 2008. It is currently the 11th longest-running show in Broadway history. The show has been recognized with several awards, including the Pulitzer Prize for Drama, posthumously awarded to Jonathan Larson. Rent would be nominated for 10 Tony Awards. The show would leave that evening with four. Best Musical, Best Book, and Best Original Score, both for Jonathan Larson, and Best Featured Actor in a Musical for Wilson Germain Heredia, who played Angel. So with that, let's head down to Alphabet City. The show opens on Christmas Eve in Manhattan's East Village. Two roommates, Mark, a filmmaker, and Roger, a rock musician, struggle to stay warm and produce their art. They are interrupted by a voicemail from Mark's mother who is wishing him a Merry Christmas and tries to comfort him since his ex-girlfriend Maureen dumped him. Tom Collins, their friend, is a gay anarchist professor of computer-age philosophy at NYU. He calls and is trying to surprise them at their apartment building, but gets mugged before he can enter. At the same time, Mark and Roger's former roommate, Benny, their friend-turned-harsh landlord, has reneged on his earlier agreement and demands last year's rent or else he will shut off their power and evict them. Mark and Roger rebel and resolve not to pay the rent they cannot afford, and which they were promised wouldn't be a problem. Elsewhere, Angel, a drag artist street performer... Uh, drummer, that is, drummer street performer, presenting out of drag, finds Collins wounded in an alley and tends to him. They are immediately attracted to one another and learn that each of them is HIV positive. Elsewhere on stage, it is revealed that Roger has HIV, which he contracted from his last girlfriend who died via suicide after learning of her diagnosis, causing Roger to spin into depression. Mark leaves the loft while Roger stays home, like usual, trying to compose a song on his guitar without success. He desperately wants to write one last song to be remembered by before he dies of AIDS. Their neighbor, Mimi, who is an exotic dancer and junkie, shows up at their apartment asking for help lighting her candle. She flirts with Roger in the process, but he is hesitant in returning her advances. Meanwhile, Joanne, a lawyer and Maureen's girlfriend, receives a voicemail from her parents criticizing her current choices. At last, the injured Collins enters the apartment and introduces Angel, who is now in full drag, to his friends. She regales the story of how she made a bunch of money by drumming a dog to death. She shares the funds with the group. Mark comes home and Benny arrives. He speaks of Maureen's upcoming protests against his plans to evict the homeless from the lot nearby. He is planning on building a cyber art studio. He offers the group that if they can convince Maureen to cancel her protest, Mark and Roger can officially remain rent-free tenants. 
They deny Benny's his offer and he leaves. Mark leaves to go help Maureen with her sound equipment for the protest. He unexpectedly meets Joanne when he gets there. They are initially hesitant with one another, but eventually bond over the shared distrust of Maureen's gaslighting and promiscuous behavior. Mark leaves to join Collins and Angel at their HIV support group, which is called Life Support. He wants to film their experience there. Mimi attempts to seduce Roger while he is alone in his apartment. Roger is obviously upset at Mimi's intrusion. He demands that she leaves him alone and resists any romantic feelings he may harbor for her. After Mimi leaves, Roger reflects on his fear of dying an undignified death from AIDS, and we hear the life support group echoes in the background of his thoughts. Collins, Angel, and Mark protect a homeless woman from police harassment by using Mark's camera to film the interaction. The woman chastises them because she believes they only did it so Mark can make a name for himself off her situation. To lighten the mood and cheer Mark up, Collins talks about his dream of escaping New York City to open up a restaurant in Santa Fe. After Mark leaves to check on Roger, and now Collins and Angel are alone and confess their love for each other. Joanne hectically prepares for Maureen's show while trying to balance her cases, as she is a lawyer, her family, and emotions while everyone is calling her. Before the performance, Roger apologizes to Mimi and invites her to come to the protest and dinner and the dinner party afterwards with his friends. At the same time, police vendors, and homeless people prepare for the protest. Maureen makes her grand entrance and begins her avant-garde, if not over-the-top, performance based on the Hey Diddle Diddle nursery rhyme. Just moo with me at this moment. Just moo. At the post-show party at the Life Cafe, Benny arrives, criticizes the protest and the group's bohemian lifestyle. In response... Mark and all the cafe patrons defiantly rise up to celebrate their way of life. Mimi and Roger step away to talk and discover that they are both HIV positive and hesitantly decide decide to move forward with their relationship. Joanne breaks up the party and explains that Mark and Roger's building has been padlocked and a riot has broken out. Roger and Mimi are completely unaware as they share their first kiss, and the celebration continues. End of Act 1. Act 2 starts with the cast lined up iconically and singing together in a scene that is outside the world of the show. They sing Seasons of Love that affirms that one should measure life in love. The plot of the show resumes with Mark and Roger gathering to break back into their locked apartment with their friends. While waiting for the others to arrive, we zoom into the answering machine in their apartment that plays a new voicemail. The voicemail is from an executive at Buzzline, a tabloid news company that wants to offer a job to Mark because of his footage of the riot. The others arrive and finally break through the door just as Benny arrives. He states that he would like to call a truce and also reveals that Mimi used to be his girlfriend and that she came by his office to change his mind. Mimi denies rekindling her relationship with Benny, but Roger is so upset that he doesn't want to hear it. The couple apologize to one another, but Mimi goes to a drug dealer to get a fix to feel better. It's now Valentine's Day, and Mark 
tells the audience that Roger and Mimi have been living together. But they're at odds with each other. He also notes that Maureen and Joanne are preparing another protest. While the pair is at rehearsal for Maureen's protest, uh, Maureen criticizes Joanne's controlling behavior, and Joanne criticizes Maureen's promiscuous mannerisms. They break up dramatically following an ultimatum that they gave each other. Time moves forward to spring, and we see that Roger and Mimi's relationship is strained by Mimi's escalating heroin usage and Roger's lasting jealousy and suspicion of Benny. While alone, Roger and Mimi sing about love and loneliness, telling each other how they feel as a result of watching Colin's nurse Angel, whose health is declining due to AIDS. By the end of summer, Mark continues to receive calls offering him a corporate job at Buzzline. A dance is performed representing all of the couple's sex lives. At the climax of the number, the two former couples break up and Angel suddenly dies. At the funeral, the friends briefly come together to share their memories, with Collins being the last to reminisce. After the heartfelt song, Mark turns to the audience to express his fear of being the only one left surviving when the rest of his friends die of AIDS and he decides to accept the corporate job offer. Roger reveals that he's leaving for Santa Fe, which sparks an argument about commitment between him and Mimi, and between Maureen and Joanne. Collins arrives and admonishes the entire group for fighting on the day of Angel's funeral. This causes Maureen and Joanne to reconcile, but not Mimi and Roger. The group shares a sad moment, knowing that between death and leaving, their close-knit friendships will be breaking up. Everyone leaves except Mark and Roger. Mark tries to convince Roger to stay in New York. Roger, unable to handle Mimi's declining health, becomes angry with Mark and leaves. Mimi returns to say goodbye and overhears everything that Roger said. She is terrified and agrees to go to rehab, which Benny pays for. Collins is forcibly removed from the church for being unable to pay for pay for Angel's funeral. Benny shows compassion and pays. He also offers Mark and Collins drinks. Only Collins accepts, causing Benny and Collins to rekindle their old friendship. Mark has to turn down the offer due to work commitments. Sometime later, both Mark and Roger simultaneously reach an artistic epiphany. Roger finds his song in Mimi and Mark finds his film in Angel's memory. Roger decides to return to New York in time for Christmas, while Mark quits his job to devote his efforts to working on his own film. The characters' parents at this point are very concerned and confused about their respective situations and leave several worried messages on all of their phones. On Christmas Eve, exactly one year having passed, Mark prepares to screen his now-completed film to his friends. Roger has written his song, but no one can find Mimi for him to play it to. Benny's wife, discovering Benny's relationship with Mimi, has pulled Benny out of the East Village. The power suddenly blows, and Collins enters with hands full of cash, revealing that he has reprogrammed the ATM at the grocery store to provide money to anybody with the code A-N-G-E-L. Maureen and Joanne enter abruptly, carrying Mimi, who had been homeless and is now weak and close to death. 
She begins to fade, telling Roger that she loves him. Roger tells her to hold on as he plays her the song he wrote for her, revealing the depth of his feelings for her. Mimi appears to die, but wakes abruptly, claiming to have been heading into a white light before a vision of Angel appeared, telling her to go back and stay with Roger. The remaining friends gather together in a final moment of shared happiness and resolve to enjoy whatever time they have left with each other, affirming that there is no day but today. Alrighty, so now that we are done going over the show let's dive into let's get into it yeah let's do this now that you've listened for the first hour here comes the second hour <laughs> well i mean it is a mammoth of a show there's a lot to break down i could talk about this show for days and days and days and days and that's a different show song but yes i could um let's start with the set this is a show <laughs> This is a show whose set does it goes beyond the stage, um, uh, and and just a preface this we're we're going to mainly be discussing um, the Broadway production of the Needlelander Theater because um, as mentioned in the beginning that was revised uh, off Broadway, but we're going to mainly be discussing uh, the Broadway production. So the set, like I said, it it's it is the entire theater. You walk in the Needlelander Theater. Well, let me back up actually. The outside of the theater, that theater itself already looked dingy and grungy, and it looks like New York from the 90s. And at first you're like, wow, man, the Nederlander doesn't like to take care of its like shows. Like The marquee is like the lowest, like someone like bought a five cent thing and slapped it on the marquee. It, you can see the white bars behind it that light it up. And then it just says rent. There's nothing like glam about it. It's basic. It's simple. It's mm-hmm. borderline well, and it, trashy. Right. Well, and it looks like those R E N T like Spray letters. Paint. Yeah. Well, those letters that you could just buy, peel Put and on your stick mail, and box. Yeah. Yeah. But then you know, like I said, the building kind of looks weathered and that. But you walk in the theater and the walls are covered with posters and stuff. There's plastic, like that plastic that catches plaster or paint or something, mm-hmm. everywhere. You at, at one point I remember walking on it in the lobby, and you know you get your seats. We were always in the balcony, and um, it's all over like the sides of the theater, over the balconies, and that. Um, so um, it the the theater looks like it's under a constant renovation, which I you know you and I have been to a theater before. When it is under a renovation, mm-hmm. uh, when we saw SpongeBob, and I was like, "Oh, it's so cute! Look, they've got fishnets everywhere!" And you're like, "No, the theater's getting ready to be renovated. That's not part yeah, of the set." I was like, set. "I think those are holding the theater together." <laughs> but no, this this set like the theater looked crumbly and cheap, and which created an aesthetic. Then you move on to the stage, and it's so. Well, it's scaffolding, it's that plastic. It's industrial, it's, it's whatever we found in the alley, we brought it on on the stage and we put it together. It's dirty. Yeah, the, what I love is it's so, it's so found. 
like Angel's Christmas tree is this like borderline windmill that they just like put together or whatever. And there's really no big set changes, if you will. No, because the world exists all in the same place and just kind of as we move, there are certain areas that are like, oh, this is kind of the communal area. This is the focus area. This is the stage area. You right, know, right. It's and not... I mean, there's a few things that come in yeah. to change where we're at. Like, you know, we, we get a but table like, and a couple windows for the live cafe. Yeah, that's set dressing, not necessarily set Exactly. Like the set. You don't see these giant set pieces or flats moving in like in other shows that completely change the scenery to dictate now we're on a street. Now we're, you know, when they, when they go to, when they go from the protest space to where they're holding the, um, the, the support group. Oh, yeah. The life support group. There's no big set change. It's just a different location on stage. Yeah, you just, your eye moves and you've traveled. But it works so well well and especially with how many like how much we're switching time and we're progressing through time and we're changing set yet as you're watching the show you feel like you're moving through the city yeah and well and you feel it it feels grungy without being grungy if that makes sense it's not insulting yeah It, it, it you it does a very good job of accurately depicting that world without being insulting. And it also, I will say, it doesn't glorify it either. Yes, it doesn't glorify it. And I think that's best when they're walking through Tent City. Yeah, well, or even like when one of my favorite parts is right before the protests and this beautiful just crossing of songs. Remember where they're kind of like at the, it's almost like a bazaar, mm-hmm. you know, and everyone's singing their own, like their own, it's their song. I always say it's the crossing over of arias, and that's probably not the best definition, but we'll get to that. And there's all the people selling clothes, and you have mm-hmm. the cops, and the drug dealers and that, and you have all this happening. It's not like, um, what, it's not, um, who, it's not Dickinson, like, where we're like, oh, look, it's the poor people, yay, you no, know. No, it was very real. Yeah, and it's like, this is, re- this is how it really is. And I mean, even going back to when I went to New York in the 2000s, uh, in the late 2000s, like people who Early were in 2000s? poverty. Uh, okay, mid 2000s. <laughs> calm down, you. But well, when I was in New York in the 90s, people who were in poverty, I mean, I appreciate a show that doesn't glorify it, but also doesn't like, doesn't take advantage of it. It's, this was not a show that was meant to be like, you need to completely feel bad about it, but it wasn't also trying to make a buck off of it. This is a show that was like, hey, hold a mirror up so you know this is happening. Right. If you feel empowered to do something about it, do it. But we're we're drifting. <laughs> set. <laughs> yeah. It was minimalistic. It was great. And it felt artistic, too. Like, it didn't feel gaudy or anything. It felt avant-garde. Yes. Well, and I feel like this kind of, this was... This show really set the tone of what a found set could look like. Yeah. Well, and I want to be careful when I say this because I'm, as I'm saying it, Michael Bennett in a chorus line is already yelling at me in the back of my head. It felt what an off-Broadway show coming to Broadway felt like. Because it came to Broadway and it didn't feel mega musical-esque. It felt like it was... You love it, to use that esque. I, esque is the word. I mean, it, it's a safe word, you know, that way. And it was like, I didn't completely say it. But, you know, it. the show feels huge. But at the same time, it's 
it was developed in a small setting and it felt that way. If that yes. makes any sense. Yes. Well, and that's a you could tell that its roots started in that off off Broadway, even you know, like like it's that workshop feel. I yeah. mean, and when you could tell it was produced at a workshop, but the aesthetic vibe with the story that they didn't have to change it and they could just transfer the aesthetic to Broadway. They didn't have to change the substance. Right. Exactly. Um, speaking of substance and that, lights. There, there's oh, not the a iconic, lot to talk about. But the iconic but moment. It, when you think of Rent, when you think of Rent, anyone who thinks of Rent, you know, there's a few moments, but there's one in particular, and it's the actors on the lip of the stage in the individual spots, and you hear those chords. I, I saw TikTok. That's right, kids. I see TikTok. <laughs> I'm on the Tic Tacs. Um, and it was like, can you name the show based on this little intro? And they gave like a six second intro. And the, I mean, I heard the first chord, the bling. I was like, it's Ren. <laughs> I, I knew that one chord. Mm-hmm. That iconic scene of those, I think it's 15 spots on those actors. Something like that, yeah. And just everyone is literally spotlighted, but from above. So that it's like, we are all here. We well, are all individuals yeah we're all together what i love well what i love about that is they're all there everyone sings in unison but they all look like they're they're in the same space but they're all separated if that makes sense well and that scene itself is so iconic because really it it doesn't go with the show but it goes with the show because it lives out that, it's like a Greek that whole well, moment. that whole moment, yeah, lives outside the story. Yeah, but it's, but it's it is the story. Exactly. Yeah, <laughs> and it, it settles you back in. And I, I got to say this uh, for for fluidity of thought. There's two halves in this show, and what I love about this show, if you are a a well knowledge, well, even if you're not a well knowledge theater person, but you know, theater is made up of two things: drama and comedy, tragedy and comedy, and that literally is what these two halves are the act one in my opinion is comedy there's more lightheartedness there's more hope there's more optimism more things happen and in the second act it's a lot more tra- i mean a lot more tragedy right. it's See, a lot heavier even though we end on this optimistic note the it doesn't the show doesn't really give you uplifting hope really until See, the end I- but but what I love is we finish the show on this empowering Viva la Viva and we're all like, yeah, stick to the man. That song, that moment with those lights, it settles you back in and sets the mood so that you're like, okay, don't forget where we're at. Even though the second act starts, kind of where we left off with the Happy New Year and kind of bubbly fun and that, just to remind you that, hey, there is still some heavy stuff going on. Well, see, I... I feel like the show is definitely two halves, but I don't know if I'd necessarily comedy and tragedy is how I'd divvy it up in my brain. But, like, I feel like in Act One, especially, you know, since we were just talking about lights, uh, there's a lot of the Christmas light feel in the first part, but then there's more bright blinding light in the second one. And I think, personally, it comes down to the lights telling the story of Act One is acceptance that we have AIDS, but what does that mean? And act two is, oh, this is the reality Well, and I can see that too. Is like act one is, is the shame or the darkness of the disease. Right, and, and it's... They 
hope and the optimism and the well and it well and i feel like the easiest way to depict it is the beginning is going i am i am my illness but act two is overcoming that and being i am not my diagnosis well and it's so hard for us now to understand their the mental state of i have aids and i'm going to die and i'm going to die soon but back then i mean i mean even now of course aids aids it's just horrible, and it is, it is a well, death sentence. We do need to make sure we're separating HIV versus AIDS. Right, but, but back then, I mean, AIDS, AIDS was a certain death and certain death soon. And it wasn't quite the AIDS crisis of the 80s, but still, the, the, the breakthroughs we had made aren't what they are today. And so the fact that, that these characters are kind of accepting, the, like, yeah, I'll be dead in a couple of years if, I, if that. Mm-hmm. That's heartbreaking, and it's also hard for us to understand where it's like, you could live a full life still. We have the ability now, not so much then. But I love, I think the lighting is done in Act 1. It's like every character has a song, every character has some lighting. Mm -hmm. And I think in Act 2, it starts to meld together. Well, and everything's very shadow and blinding light. That's the one thing that sticks out in my brain. It's it's, it's left and right. There's no kind of middle ground. Yeah. the costumes. Look, we've already mentioned about how the the poverty people are just kind of like I said, it's not Dickinson, Dickinsonian, Dickens, Dickensian. Dickensian's the word. I need to get <laughs> As there. like he is gonna get college degree. Any moment. <laughs> Dickensian. It's not Dickensian. Um, it's real. And oh, oh, okay. So I was driving around. And I was thinking about this this week when we were prepping for this. Um, what I love about the costumes. In thinking about this, is the shows from the '90s, but you could totally do the show right now with the same costumes. I don't need to tell anybody it's in the '90s. It's it it works. Well, it's timeless. I I think each of the shows costumes have become their icons. Like you think of Mark with his sweater, or uh, Roger. I mean, he's classic guitar, you know, man. Angel whatever. with that Christmas. Well, and dress. that whole that whole concept of like angel as a concept and as an icon i mean what the costume designer did to create that you know it you without even seeing the show the more like just to know angel and know hear how angel flows through the story is to know that angel is someone who's optimistic so they're gonna have bright colors they're gonna have something that's funky and different and in my mind angel is the the way that Angel is dressed at any moment in the show is depicting what life in New York is like. Angel takes any situation that they get and they make it work. Mm-hmm. And that's the same with their costume. When I love the line where it's like she would find a a, a shower curtain on, on the side of the road and she turned it into a dress and sure enough they'd be mass producing it at Saks the following fall. And... That's that's per that really is what her outfits look like. Well, that. and the thing is, is those kind of people who are iconic like that were f- were just like Angel, and they still exist, and they're still out there, and they're these artists who are just trying to live their lives and be happy, and they still exist. And I feel like Angel is Angel is the spirit of the Bohemian lifestyle that everyone wants. Like she is a literal depiction of it in the way that she dresses. And the costumes stay very simple throughout the show. There's not a lot of change in the ensemble members who make up the other characters. It's very minor changes. But again, 
I think it's a cast of 15, but the characters, I mean, they're, there's a lot of them. and mm-hmm. Hats on, hats off, coats on, coats you know, off. The, the police, they get a, a helmet and a vest. Or shield. It really is ultimate theater storytelling where it's like, and now I'm this, and now I'm that. Right, but you, know, you suspend your disbelief because you just yep. see what's happening before you unfold, and you're like, yeah, I'll go there with you. I will go there with you. Um, I want to move on to the sound. Um, oh, wait, I'm sorry. There's one more thing I wanted to mention about the costumes just because it's the here and now. The the word that comes to mind when I think about the show, and it's just because it's not today's term, thrifting. It looks like the costume designer went to a thrift store and had a field day. And I mean that with all the respect in the world and in the best way. It works so well. No one is dressed like high fashion. And and that's, to me, that's... Well, and I really... How would you sell a show about artists and bohemians? The only person that ever looks well put together, truly and honestly, is Benny in that tracksuit and whatnot. Mm-hmm. And even that, you're just like, you don't fit in no, here. No, Joanne and, puts, gets put together. She's a well, lawyer. Well, yeah, no, no, but. that's fair. When, she, when she, she does get put together, but what's funny is when they're put together, you also buy that they don't belong. Well, and, and, and what I mean by that is like, Benny doesn't belong as wealthy, and Joanne doesn't belong as wanting to be wealthy. She belongs with the Bohemians. That's where she wants to be. Benny doesn't want to be a Bohemian. He wants to be rich, but he doesn't belong being rich, if that makes sense. You can see that that... You look at that and you go, something's off with that. See, and I really think that my favorite thing about the costumes is that I feel like the designer got into the heads of the character as they exist beyond the show and developed their clothing. Like, I honestly feel like, you know, at any given moment because of the hard work that the designer did, like, when we see an outfit now, we're like, oh, that's a Maureen. Yeah, but it's oh, no, purely absolutely. because she went through and did all the hard work of getting into the characters' heads. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, I want to make one note on sound. We don't normally talk about sound because, you know, it's like, oh, the sound sounded great. It was balanced. But there's an interesting fact or note about Jonathan Larson, who is just an absolute genius. Um, in his original concept or script or what have you, uh, he wrote that he wanted a full rock band on the stage and then a full Broadway orchestra in the pit. And this just goes to show his, like, creative genius, you know. Now, I'm not 100% sure. I think it's just the rock band up on the stage is what they ended up with. Um, but, I mean, he wanted – this This was to be a complete Broadway collaborative. I mean – Well, this was to be, like, a fully uh, filled – Orchestra. Yeah, and I now symphony li- orchestra. That's what I was looking for. Listening to the show, I don't know where we would put a Broadway orchestra. I think it's it's perfect the way it is. I don't know where you'd put violins and trombones and stuff, but um, that just shows you where his mind was going. Um, it really is such such a tragedy that he passed when he did because, I mean, the, the man to see what he would have come up with, to see where he would have gone. The works that he didn't get to create, the the music he didn't get to create and experiment with. Uh, I'm just gonna put this little fantasy out there. Can you imagine if he and Lin Manuel Miranda got together? What could have been? What sounds might have been created? But anyway, I wanted to throw that fact out there. Um, let's talk about the direction. Uh-huh. Michael Grief. He is gonna come up in a lot of podcasts in the future. Um, fantastic director 
I thought the show was natural. I thought it, the direction was subtle. It was beautiful. It was just well, real. It's, it's one of those kinds of directing that the more you watch a sh- the show, the more you can get out of it because there's so many layers to it, but it's not overwhelming that you can't focus. And I also like that, you know, the director's job is obviously to steer the ship, guide the ship, make sure the whole thing comes together. How many directors have had to deal with what he had to deal with with the show? You know, the creator passed away on the night before your first preview. You know, that, now it's your job to make sure that this show comes to fruition on your back. To create the legacy. Well, and you've got to keep the cast and everybody going forward. And this, I mean, it'd be one thing if it's a comedy, but this show, literally, they can, they're singing the songs and they're acting out these scenes. And how do you not think about this person who's been in the room with you for weeks and months and for some people even years? Mm-hmm. No longer there. But I think also that's why this show is so powerful, especially the seasons of love, mm-hmm. because it they literally went through it as a group together to get like to help them continue living, just well, like the show is trying to create. And there's a great balance of subtlety and really artistic moments, which I think really tie back to the fact that the the source material is an opera. Mm-hmm. Um, and what I mean by that is, you know, there's a lot of, you know, we've got a tango in Act One. Um, we've got these great crossing arias, like I mentioned, um, right before we do the um, protest. Um, La Vie Boheme, by the way. It's not just kind of like a hearkening to Billy Joel's We Didn't Start the Fire. No, look up the references that Jonathan there Larson wrote. There's so many references. There's a, But there's a reason they're in there. Mm-hmm. And so it's not just a confluence of words they're there for a reason well and that's why that that song by itself can be an anthem and and making sense of all that that was the director's point, like job to okay we've got to make sure that all this flows do you know what you're saying and what is this movement how do we and how do you feel about that because these people are bohemians who are passionate about stuff they're not just saying these words to say these words because they're like aha get this reference no there needs to be emotion behind the word and there's just all these little moments and these gestures and these touches. And one of my favorite, um, in fact, when we were going through the synopsis, I even got teary-eyed thinking about it. Um, it's Angel's Death. Mm. So the way they do Angel's Death, it's building, it's building, you're getting emotional. Angel was all about love. Well, And, and I love that they kind of referenced this free free love and excess in angel's death you know it's it's not necessarily just a big sex scene but it's just this free love like everyone's experiencing ecstasy in this moment and angels giving it all to them and the moment that everyone has their moment where they're like oh it's not working it's not working it's not working that's when that's after Angel's passed. He's having this moment as well, and he's sitting there, and he's like, take me today for you. To... And when he finally sinks away, that's when everyone goes, shit, shit, over, over, dut, 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 dut. And no, then, it's, and it's then over. It's, it's well, over. Yeah, they're all, they're all saying it, and then it, the spot hits Collins, and he's just holding the blanket that was wrapped around Angel, and he goes, it's over. And everyone gathers around, and they have the funeral, and what I love is Angel, 
Everyone is in black, by the way. Angel's the only one in white. And he's upstage and he's listening. He gets to hear all this, but he is slowly walking away. And it's right before Collins gets up to sing. Um, and I think it's Maureen says... Um, it's either on her line where she says, you always said, um, you always said you were lucky enough to know us, but it was us who were the lucky ones. It's either on that line or it's on the joke where Mark's, um, says, and there was, uh, or anyway, he got in the face of this guy who called the skinhead, the skinhead. And he says, I'm more of a man than you'll ever be. I'm more of a woman than you'll ever have. One of those uh, um, anecdotes are told, but he stops, Angel stops before he exits, turns, smiles, laughs, turns his head and looks directly into this light and walks off. And that's when Collins comes up. And that is such a powerful moment. Because to me, it's that like, Angel wouldn't want, and, and a lot of people I think feel this way, Angel wouldn't want this sad remembrance of him. He would want, excuse me, of her. She would want um, this celebration, so I think she loved hearing that little well, funny thing. I think that really, um, as far as Angel goes, um, having that moment, uh, it really just shows how like how hard it hits all of us when someone leaves us but knowing that our greatest like way we can honor them is to like think of them watching on us you know I mean and that I don't know it's like a visual depiction of what you would hope would come from a person right and I also love the fact that when Angel comes back at the end, and spoiler alert if you didn't know, Angel comes back at the very end of the show at the, after they're all singing No Day But Today in white. Mm-hmm. They don't bring her back on in, in the drag or in their original costume. They're in white, and I think that's really important because it's to acknowledge still the fact that it's like, no, they've, this they made character an, They passed. were here and they mattered. Right. So it's those little subtleties that are very important also it's really fine-tuning certain lines to make dramatic lines pop out well and especially in a show where so many of the the show is sung yes it's it's very much like an operetta and and what i meant by what i was saying about making sure certain lines pop out to emphasize dramatic lines there's a great moment in the life support meeting where um, it's the first one where they're doing their credo. You know, there's only us. One of the, Paul gets up and he says, I'm having a problem with this credo. Um, and he mentions his T cells were low and everything like that. You know, and again, you may not know, understand AIDS. You may not understand what that means, what T cells are low and everything. But the fact that he says, you know, and that scares me. And the leader says, well, why choose fear? And the fact that the line, and and every time I've seen it, it's delivered perfectly. I'm a New Yorker. Fear's my life. You, you have to have those little nuggets because 
if we thought this news before was hard, the second part is really even stronger because he talks about how he's trying to understand and believe what he's saying, but common sense tells him he should have died five years ago. And that's the line where Roger comes in, you know? And I think that the finding those moments, that's the director's job to really go, you know, you're dwelling on this dramatic line, but it's actually this humorous line you've got to nail because that's going to make this other part really pop. And I know we keep talking about Angel, but I think her character is the one that allows for so much drama to really pop. And I also think that's why with her passing, everything just boils over. Well, and that's why the person who plays Angel cannot play Angel as a catty queen. No, it's the most giving, selfless person. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's in her song, the first song she sings, Today for You, Tomorrow for Me. That is her philosophy. She'll take care of herself tomorrow, but it's all about you for now. Everything she does, she never does anything for herself in the entire show. It's all about everybody else. And a lot of the other characters are doing a lot of things just for them. Yeah, they're, yeah. It's very selfish, but she is the one person that that um, that gives and gives and gives. Oh, so, <laughs> hour or two down. <laughs> Rent has had several notable cast members, including Anthony Rapp, who played Mark, Daphne Rubin Vega, who played Mimi, Adam Pascal, who played Roger, Jesse L. Martin, who played Collins, Idina Menzel, who played Maureen, Tay Diggs, who played Benjamin Coffin III, Adam Cantor, again Mark, Norbert Leo Butts, who played under, who understudied and then went on for Roger, and of course, Mel B, who uh, played Mimi. Well, and Mel B is in Scary Spice. You're not wrong. In 2005, there was a motion picture that featured most of the original cast. In 2008, the Broadway production was filmed featuring such actors as Will Chase, Eden Espinosa, Telly Long, and El- Renee Elise Goldsberry. You might recognize a few of those names. Will Chase from Be More Chill and Renee Elise Goldsberry from uh, Hamilton. So let's now talk about the impact this show has had on the theater and its history. Oh, oh my gosh. Our three guys. <laughs> this show just has so many things to unpack, which is why it's so important for so many people. So this is episode 10, and I just, I feel like we need to put a whiteboard up here. Number of episodes we've gone without saying this, and I, I'm sure it's at zero, but listen, this is true. It brought a whole new generation of theater goers to Broadway. In fact, they had a nickname. They were called Rent Heads. Um, mm-hmm. At a time in, in history when the Broadway theater really wasn't super popular among the, the youths, the youngins, uh, you know, the last big hit among the younger generation that really started a movement was, can you name it? Hair. Hair, that's right. All the way back to hair. That was the last big, like, big movement um, among the younger generation. All of a sudden, this show came on the scene. And this was the first show for the MTV generation, and it spoke to them. Um, And and, and it, it goes beyond the MTV generation, because I can remember back in my day, <laughs> when I was in high school, and the movie came out, and so many people 
discovered Rent for the first time. Mm-hmm. And they were blown away. And I was like, this is Rent. Like, oh my God, this was like Theater 101 growing See, up as a kid. I knew the movie existed, but I had no idea like its historical context or anything. And I mean, the movie is good, don't get me wrong. But the second I heard the original cast album... And then got to see the actual filmed production. My mind was blown. Like there are so many beautiful small songs that they turned into uh, like dialogue in the movie that just oh, like they were meant to be sung. This is this is my thing about turning musicals into movies. You lose so much when you cut so much out. When they film it live on stage, when you PBS film this thing, when you don't do 40 sound stages, when you put the three-camera format up, you know, um, uh, Red Film Live on Broadway was great. Hamilton has been good so far. When you do it like that, it really communicates well because, our, like you said, there are a lot of things you lose in translation. They reorganize a couple things. You lost a few of the songs. And I'm like, man... I think a lot of people would love to see bits and pieces of I this. I mean, the, the the part for It's Beginning to Snow literally plays uh, in my head every single time it snows. I, I love will for the, the rest of my life. Like, quartet, you know, and they do the Rudolph the Red Nose Reindeer, and he takes yes. his antlers and he flips the audience off, and I'm just <laughs> like, you miss that. But yeah, so this, this while, while Cats kind of brought the family together, it didn't like invigorate a generation to return to the theater. Rent was Rent was the first show that was like, hey, children of the 80s and 90s, like this is for you. The MTV generation, this is for you. It, Gen X, come see us. It took the rock musical to a whole nother level and it really solidified the rock musical. And this show, in its place in the tomes of the mm-hmm. theater. Well, because I feel like for the longest time people were like, oh, rock and roll can't be Broadway. Well, I mean, we, we've had rock musicals before yeah, that. We but... had, but when, when people think of rock musicals prior to this, you're thinking about hair, you're thinking about Promises, Promises. Right. I don't think Tommy had been done yet. Um, well, but the... people didn't really see that, like, you know, music musicals were going to ebb and flow with the changes of music. It, well, exactly. Rent got... Rock and roll musicals were just kind of like once in a blue moon and they weren't taken like entirely seriously. And this would happen again to another style of music and to another composer. <laughs> You're going to make it later. again. <laughs> it's Lin-Manuel Miranda. When he wrote In the Heights, people thought that hip hop and everything would be a passing fad. But if you look at shows after that, how many shows incorporate hip hop-esque lyrics well, in that? And, if- and the most popular show in the world right now is Hamilton, which is unlike anything else in the world and if you look at shows new and 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 um even recent shows look how many shows have that style of 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 music i mean i'm thinking of things like six that are coming mm-hmm. and they have that hip-hop style i'm mm-hmm. thinking of shows even like moulin rouge right well and it's important to note that hamilton wasn't the first to do hip-hop on the broadway stage it was the but first to, to do be it wildly six- successfully yes. yes it's like harvey firestein says la caja fall not the first gay uh musical in the world but the first gay musical to be successful and in america it's all about success you know <laughs> um and that's just a, a abbreviated quote but yeah so rent really was like no rock and roll and and modern rock and roll is here to stay mm-hmm. you know um it brought and it brought in the sounds of the 90s and, and one of the things i said earlier was that grungy feeling 
All right, kids, here we go. Grandpa's dating himself. <laughs> there was a sound in the 90s called grunge. <laughs> Nirvana <laughs> is grunge. Yes, it was developed <laughs> in, in the Pacific Northwest, and it and it's this heavy guitar, just kind of angsty, angry. And Jonathan Larson brought that sound into the theater and really amplified it because, you know, there was rock and roll and there was like heavy, like a mad or explosive. But what grunge did, it just, it was, you know, in musical theater, we sing when there's no, there's, we have this emotion. There's no other way to express it, but through song. What grunge did, I feel like is there was just all these emotions that we had no other way to express them. We just, you know, and he brought that into musical theater and was like, oh my God, yeah, we're already doing this in this form. You should come and party with us. And you hear it, one of my favorite things, because I just rewatched it, was the opening of Rent when they're going through the December 24th, 9 p.m., and they have the three different voicemails. Mm-hmm. And you can just feel everything building. Mm-hmm. And Benny's coming, and like, oh, crap. Well, yeah, because uh, Roger's tuning his guitar in the background. And, they're, and he's trying to write this song, and then... And, and Mark is filming and he's trying to write a song and the power blows and Mark is just frustrated and he yells at the power blows and then you hear the conductor two, three, four and it just hits you with, and everyone comes out on the stage and everyone you just feel this pissed off energy and I'm like that's grunge that's the 90s we had all this like exploding emotion as young people that we just we didn't know what to do well, be- and and I feel like uh, the, today's generation can can really relate to this. Well, and a lot of it leads into the societal impact because in society right here, we just like the eighties were this strange place because we had the Cold War happening, but everyone was living the lap of luxury and pretending like it didn't exist. The land of excess and everything. Yes, and but we spend, were still in spend, fear. and me, yeah. me, me, and so. You know, the 80s were all excess, and then you have the 90s where it split off in... A Cold War was over. We had nothing to fear. Well, and we had these two different split-offs because at this point, counterculture or subculture lived under the surface. It didn't make it to the surface. But then once you had that grunge movement happen, you had, you know, the supermodel, clean cut, everything professional, everything, you know, and that's what everyone's like, okay, I guess this is just going to stay mainstream. And finally grunge said, you know what? We're tired of being the counterculture existing in the background. We are going to come to the forefront. Well, and the other thing is after... The 80s, after the Cold War now, which I'm glad you brought up. Now the 90s, instead of looking outward at every issue, we had to look inward. inward. And that's what Rem was doing was like, yeah, you thought everything outside was scary? Take a look at us. You've got rampant drug use. You've got homelessness. We We can't afford to live. We We still have have AIDS. epidemic. And it's this young generation that the world is looking to to solve the problem, but they can't afford to put a roof over their head or food right, on the table because, any you know, of the sounding familiar folks. And they're just like, fuck, like, <laughs> ah, they're mad. And then that's why we had this really powerful, the first song smacks you in the mouth mm-hmm. saying, we're not going to do this anymore. We're tired as hell. We're mad. And that was the sound and the energy of the nineties. And it brought that to the Broadway right. stage. And, and it, it, may, it was the hair of the 90s. Well, it, literally, it was great. Yeah, and it just, I mean, I think that really the marriage of 
rent and that grunge sound is what made it so that it didn't fall into the background because like hair came out and everyone loved it but then you know the 70s came up and we were vibing so we we're like ah we're fine we're gonna you know countercultures you know subcultures just gonna chill in the background but then the 90s were like you know what we're pissed off our culture matters the individual matters and especially with this advent of the internet you know now people can get their voices out easier and you can make counterculture mainstream without having to subject it to, you know, capitalism. I'm going to build on that in a minute, but the last thing I want to say about theatrical impact, <laughs> because we're, we're totally running oh. into societal impact. We're blending everything tonight. This ushered in a new era of Broadway composer, producer, director melding uh in jonathan larson and michael grief and michael grief would go on to produce men or direct excuse me many many other uh great works but you know jonathan larson would leave a lasting impression with just a single work on broadway um but it really became a huge platform um for Michael Grief, and you know, you, you'll recognize his works in things such as Great Gardens, If Then, uh, War Paint, Dear Evan Hansen, Next to Normal. You know, um, honestly, <laughs> when I see a work by uh, my a, a work directed by Michael Grief, I'm immediately like, oh, yeah, okay, cool. I know exactly what that is. You know, <laughs> like that totally reads like him. Um, well, I also think this another gray blending area between theater impact and society impact is to talk about Jonathan Larson's lasting legacy in oh, the foundation. Oh, I want to I want to go on about this. Everyone pull up a chair. <laughs> Unky Bunky is going to go on. Okay, so Unky Bunky. <laughs> yeah. So when Jonathan Larson passed, um, and if you guys don't haven't caught on already, like Jonathan Larson is, you know, got that personal file and. For him, like he's one of my favorites. Um, when he passed, uh, well, let me take a step back actually. So, Jonathan Larson was a struggling artist. He always wanted to be a composer, he always wanted to be a Broadway composer in particular. Um, he met such greats as Stephen Sondheim and such. He worked at a, um, a restaurant called the Moon Dance Cafe. That, Which, was, his, that it, was his day job. And that's what they modeled the Life Cafe after. Correct. And um, when finally um, the New York Theater Workshop picked up to de- his rent to develop, there's a great clip of him in Broadway, the American Musical, where he's showing like he's making his last chocolate shake and that, you know, he's finally being able to quit his day job because someone's developing and producing his work. And any artist out there and us as well, we can all relate when someone finally wants to pay you to do your art like it's amazing you don't have to do your day job or as we harry potter fans say our muggle job (laughs) um anyway when he passed his family set up the jonathan larson performing arts foundation and basically the royalties from rent go to this foundation and its purpose is to help support the creative work for um uh, composers and writers, uh, particularly musical theater composers and writers, um, to help allow them to leave their day jobs and create art, which, I mean, Jonathan Larson's already given, a, given us this amazing piece of art in Rent, right. this lasting legacy. Not to mention other things such as Tick, Tick, Boom, which is going to be developed. I think it's on Netflix. Um, but now we get, now he's also in 
and, and death has left this lasting legacy. Well, now that foundation's uh, now uh, the grant. It's now Jonathan Larson Grant. It's called the Jonathan Larson Grant. It's now administered by the American Theater Wing. Um, and recently it's been, uh, there, there's a panel, a selection panel that's put together by people in the theater. Um, some people that made up this panel include like Patty Lapone, um, Dave Malloy, Stephen Lutvec, um, Robert Lopez, people like that. And they basically select people who will receive this grant every year to, like I said, help fund them, create art, and so forth. It's incredible. And you may not realize, but you have probably seen works or theaters that have benefited from this. Um, and I just want to name a few that have received these grants, such as the Vineyard Theater, um, Stephen Lutvac, um, the Signature Theater. Forgive me, I'm looking at names while I'm doing this. Allison Loeb, Joe Iconis, Pasek and Paul. Sound familiar, anybody? <laughs> um, Ryan Scott Oliver, Dave Malloy. You are, you've said Dave Malloy. Uh, he was on the panel. Oh, that's right. Yes, yeah. So you benefited can, and then served yeah, on the yeah, panel. Yeah, you can see that. Yep, Ben Wax uh, Wexler. You know, so it it's, it leaves a uh, lasting lasting impression. Um, one other thing uh, I just I, I wanted to mention was um, from October 9th to the fourteenth in two thousand eighteen, Fine Signs at fifty four below presented the Jonathan Larson Project, a concert of several previously unheard songs by Jonathan Larson. And the show was conceived and directed by Jennifer Ashley Tepper, um, which was cool because, you know, of course, we have his two works, but this was awesome. And it was by people who've also been a part of works that have benefited from this thing, including George Salazar, Lord Marcus, Andy Mientes, and Chris Rodriguez. So his... This foundation continues to just, like, branch out and touch mm-hmm. everyone. Well, and if you remember when we were talking about it, um, you know, Jonathan Larson had uh, he had hundreds of songs he wanted to put into Rent. And he oh, only yeah. was able to walk away with 42. Uh, this show could have been so much longer. but uh, This show could have been, like, a 12-part epic. I think, <laughs> I think it's just the ultimate gift that he gave to us. Mm-hmm. Um. Yeah, uh, more societal impacts. Uh, it brought to the forefront and into the mainstream uh, through theater uh, issues such as substance abuse, affordable housing, tenants' rights, and most importantly, the AIDS epidemic. And I want to elaborate here. <coughs> there were other works of theater that addressed and focused on the AIDS epidemic. Mm-hmm. If you have not seen... Or read The Normal Heart. And I'm not talking about the HBO version. The play. The play. That changed my life. You know, you need to look at it. We'll talk about it in another episode. But there were other theater pieces that did address the AIDS epidemic. But none got the spotlight like Rent did. Mm-hmm. And so they used their bully pulpit to really bring light to this. You know, of course, at this point, we already had... Uh, Equity Fights AIDS, Broadway Cares Equity Fights AIDS, but this just really amplified it even more outside of the the Broadway and the New York community across the world, you know. Um, And like I said, the other issues which, God, didn't know this 
20 years later in substance abuse, affordable housing, tenants' rights. I feel like I'm back in 1993. Right. Well, and like the the thing that gets me with a lot of this as I was watching it is, um, you know, how many mainstream movies came out that showed lesbian couples and gay couples? You know what I mean? And yes, I'm talking about the movie, but those they started in the theater and it started to become normal. I remember I had never seen like a, a quote queer or gay movie before I saw Rent. Right. Um, you know, and so, but the fact that I already knew those iconic images before I ever saw the movie shows the lasting impact that the stage had on popular culture because I hadn't seen a lot of musicals before I got into high school. Well, I'd have to go and look back in the Tomes of Theater, but I think prior to Rent, the only musical where you had a gay couple was La Gage Right. Well, and I'm, and there are other works out there, but this one was like such... This one made it to mainstream TV. You know what I mean? This made it to mainstream society. This made it to mainstream yeah. pop culture. It became pop culture icons. Well... To, to an extent. They didn't necessarily glorify the homosexuality no, but to the was, extent they would today, but they used different things about the show as like the foot in the door, well, and then it was like, oh, so you like that Roger is a rock star. Well, have you seen Angel's Dress? Oh, well, so and let us tell you about who see, Angel is I don't that. think that they glorified it at all. It was natural and normal, so it was like, yeah, why is this an issue? Well, oh, no, no, no. What I mean by that is in the 90s, you had like the second sexual revolution where all of a sudden, like, oh, well, not the sexual, second sexual revolution, excuse me, the gay, like, the I don't know what to call it. It wasn't the gay revolution because no, it wasn't they like called Stonewall, it the it. But all of a sudden, like, I want. I don't want to say it the was gay the impact that. Uh, hiding, but all of a sudden, we, no, people, it was the lasting impact that Harvey Milk had made about yeah. bringing queer culture to the forefront of society. Basically, thoughts. in the nineties, like the we're here, we're queer. Yeah, the gay community came out and they're like, "Piss off! We're here and we're doing our own thing," and. It wasn't so much glorifying it. It was more of being like, this exists. And, and it's normal. It's, yeah, you need to accept it. And actually society went, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, and I think that's great. But, you know, leading me to my next point is um, it put Broadway back in the mainstream. This was a show that all of a sudden was on the cover of major magazines. Rolling Stone, there's a cover of Roger and Mimi right there. You know, they didn't put Angel and Collins, but they put Roger and Mimi. But if you read the article, they totally talked about the different relationships well, and I that were in I think a lot there. of it, I think that this, the su- success of this show helped to create that subliminal idea that, you know, being queer is normal. So that we had more um, to stand on as we continued to fight until we got up to you know, um, gay marriage being legal in the United States. Damn straight. And so I think that this was one of those shows that helped plant that nugget in people's head that said, hey, this is normal, it's fine. Well, it's it's existed, it's going to continue to exist whether anybody likes it or not. You don't have to agree with it, but tough. It's, it's going gonna, it's gonna to be here. And we, we're not going to hide that Angel's, well, Angel and Collins love each other. What, what I love <laughs> is when people, I'm going to get on my soapbox for a minute, but I love when people are like, I'm against gay marriage. I don't think it's right. It's like, well, that's great. You can think that. It's not going anywhere because you know what? I don't like your way you're thinking, but guess what? You're still here. So hmm, we're going to have to learn <laughs> how to coexist. But it, yeah, it put Broadway back in the mainstream. This show was everywhere. It was all over TV. You couldn't go, and, and not just in New York. I mean, 
all over America. Everybody Ooh. wanted rent. This led to major, major things later on the line. I mean, more shows go on tour now. More people across the country flock to New York to go see shows. You've got more cities now that are really opening, uh, becoming like hubs for theaters like Seattle and Denver and Atlanta. It also, if you want a long tie, I keep saying the MTV generation, MTV, I want to get my timing right, 15 years later, would show a musical in Legally Blonde, mm -hmm. connecting back to that generation. You know, Broadway has always just had a tie with the, with the mainstream media. And this was just, you know, this is the show that at that time capitalized on that voice. But it reminded the world that Broadway is relevant and it's still here, um, which I think is great. You know, of course, Disney was doing its thing as well. But, uh, I mean, that's Disney. Disney owns the world. Rent was just like, by the way... There's, this counterculture exists. Well, just, you know, we can all live in the world of Disney with, you know, puppets and, and French baguettes and stuff. Or you could actually, like, have art that represents the world. I've all, there's a great quote, and I love, I love it. It's, if you want to know about a people in its history, look at its theater. Mm -hmm. You know, and yes, you know, there's a place for Disney and its shows and other fluffy shows. I mean, I love Musa Oklahoma and Music Man and that. Fluff is important, but substance keeps you full. But yeah, but at the same time, we need to know why plays such as, you know, um, uh, or shows like Rent or I'm trying to think of the word, the show we saw with Eddie Izzard and I can't think of it. Race. Race. You know, why these shows exist. Why were they done? Why was it relevant to be done at that time? So speaking of which, we're not even going to ask, is this show relevant? Because it is. Are you sure? We're not even going to ask it sure? because it is a fact that society. it is relevant. <laughs> are we still having a housing crisis? I can't remember if NPR was talking about the eviction moratorium. Right. Expiring. Substance abuse to hide your depression? No. Opioid crisis? <laughs> Get out of here. <laughs> Yeah, no. The show is the show, relevant. Yeah, the show is relevant ten times over. It should be getting revised now. It's I'm surprised more people don't put it on personally because it's just so beautiful. I I, I think it's just you know if anything I think the deterrent right now is it is heavy, but it. Look, if you leave the show heavy and full of emotion, that's also a good thing. Because also, I I think that not all art exists to it inspire, but this show inspires. I, I, I have to just do a, a side track here because this just made me it, it made me think of this. When I was working on a show, Sweat, by Lynn Nottage, um, it's a very powerful show. And race is at the heart of it. And I remember it's a predominantly white audience. And I remember hearing um, an audience member leave that night and say, I didn't really get that show. And the wife said to the man, what do you mean you didn't get it? I just, it didn't make me feel good. It left me with more questions and answers. And like, I feel kind of bad. And the wife just turned to him and went, yeah, that's the point. It wasn't meant to make you feel good. And I thought, oh my God. She hit this on that head <laughs> in so many ways. <laughs> like, not all theater is meant to make you feel happy-go-lucky. Sometimes you are meant to leave the theater feeling crappy or with more questions and answers or questioning the way things are in a different way. And I feel like Rent, though, leaves you with optimism, also makes you go, 
What God, am I gonna... is there something more we can do? Are there really people out there that are going through this? You know? Mm-hmm. It and... made me realize how many homeless people I saw every day. Right? And how easy it is for me to dismiss them. It made me realize how many people are really affected by AIDS. And AIDS is not just a gay epidemic. It's not just no. something you get from putting your hoo Roger, in someone's aha. Roger and Mimi are it's hetero. It's from needles or no, something. Yeah, they're heteronormative. The so. story is about human connection and it still exists and reminds us of how important love and community is. Love. Love. You know, RuPaul. Say it again. Love. You can't love yourself. How are you going to love someone else? Uh-huh. It's a story about how love determines your value as a human, not wealth. Uh-huh. There's a message that's more important now than ever. I mean, seriously. Right. Well, and that's, I feel like we spend too much time uh, thinking about, you know, what is our worth? And it's love. Yeah, exactly. Finally, as promised, we wanted to share some of our own personal stories about experiencing this show. So, I've seen the show four times, twice on Broadway, once at New World Stages, and once here in Salt Lake City at Pioneer Theater. I've seen the show twice, once at New World Stages, and once at Pioneer Theater. So, I don't have a ton, a ton of stories uh, related to the show, I mostly just have insight, which we've already discussed, but I do have a couple. Um, One cool thing was that when I saw the show, um, I got to see the actress that played Joanne in the film adaptation. She was in the stage version when we saw it, which was really, really cool to see. You know, it's kind of nice to see that cross in medium. Um, Speaking of which, I remember that the, the movie came out in 2006. Might have been 2000, no, Chris is 2005, but... My, my good friends and I have high school. We went over for this high school trip in 2006. This was the show that we were looking forward to. This was it. And we were all, it was like the fourth show we saw. And we were all giddy. We all cried our eyes out. And it was just amazing. And I remember every bit of that evening. Like I mean, I can recount walking to the theater like I've already done. I can remember where I sat. I, just, I remember every moment of that. And I think that's a great Broadway experience. Um, and then I remember... When we saw it off, when you and I saw it off Broadway at New World Stages, mm-hmm. um, where we were sitting, <laughs> it's kind of funny, we're in the back, and there's all these people like back there with us, and they all have binders, and they had little lights, remember? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And we were like, hell's going on? And then we finally put it together that, you know, we were seeing, I'll say the original cast of the off-Broadway show on stage, but the people who were basically... Either swings or understudies or replacements. Well, it was the replacements, if you remember... They were all watching and learning and whatnot um, the show. And I was like, oh, that's so cool to like. Right. Ah. Well, and something I remember about your second time seeing it on Broadway, um, they let people graffiti the walls. Oh, oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. oh, oh. Thanks for reminding me. Okay, because <laughs> I wrote a message about you. Yeah. Oh, yes, when we were dating. Listen, when we were dating, I thought this was the cutest thing ever that I got a, I got a grainy text message back when phone cameras sucked. <laughs> 
um, that just had on. yep that just had this heart that said hope and Andrew forever and I was like where is this so okay when I saw Rent on Broadway the second time here's how this happened uh, my best friend at the time Alex Watson who just finished raising money for his first film Bundy Manor which, yeah which is exciting congrats to him um, so make sure to check out that shout out to him but we took a trip after he graduated high school he was a year after me to New York we saw Rent and what had happened was Rent was supposed to close I think May of that year so we weren't supposed to see it but then like by some miracle they extended till September so the minute they announced it I was like I'm buying tickets so we got tickets we saw it in July and this the walls outside the theater and then like up the alley they you know and the alleyway was painted green what they were having people do is you could sign it and then when the show closed, they cut the walls off. And I don't remember where they put them. I'm going to have to do some research and update you all in the next episode. But yeah, they've put the walls somewhere. Um, <laughs> so my little message to Hope is on a wall <laughs> in some museum or something, uh, which that was cool. Um, and I believe, well, we have a shared experience, but I'm going to let you tell this one. Well, so um, I was working a uh, as the wig assistant for a production at Pioneer Theater called uh, The Count of Monte Cristo, um, The Cup of Melty Crisco. And no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> um, Which I was dressing as well. My first right. show. Oh, no, um, my second show, excuse me. Yeah, but our costume designer... For this show, just happened to be Angela Went, uh, who designed Rent, and oh my gosh, it was so hard not to fangirl because I was like, I love your work. Yeah, it took the longest time for me to like register two and two. Hope was like freaking out, and I was like, I don't get it. I, I was understand. like, Oh my gosh, this costume designer is da 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 da. And, and I was like, Who? And she like had a smack, and she's like, Rent, Rent, Rent. And I was like, What? <laughs> yeah. She so, was she was so nice. Well, and I just I loved getting to see her um, her mind at work. Um, you know, getting to see how she developed her costume ideas. Um, that was a real treasure for me. So thank you. Yeah, you never know who you're gonna work with. You never know who you're gonna meet. It it was incredible, and it's one of those like moments. And I'm like, hey, we did that. That's pretty cool. <laughs> So as things begin to return to normal and the theater world starts to turn its lights back on, we look forward to returning to see this show again. You'll be able to catch Rent somewhere at some theater near you this fall. We just want to mention as well that as things are opening up, we encourage all of you to support the arts, whether it be local, regional, or of course, Broadway. Now more than ever, it is time for us to rise up and foster the performing arts wherever they may exist. Please join us in doing your part to help the arts return by supporting a live performance near you. We ourselves have already begun this work and have a special announcement regarding this. Starting October 12th of this year, we will be returning ourselves to the Great White Way and will be bringing you updates from the reopening of Broadway. We will be releasing short little mini episodes recapping the shows we see as we see them every evening starting on this date. Whether we have talked about the show or not, 
We will be giving a brief glimpse into each show's reopening and hopefully stir up some excitement among our fellow theater lovers. Maybe even enough to get them to buy a ticket and continue to support this community we all love so much. So keep your eyes on all of our social media platforms as well as where you subscribe for these mini episodes coming this fall. Also, we would really love to hear from all of you out there. Send us your personal stories about your experience in the theater. Whether it was on stage, backstage, or at the stage door, we want to hear all about it. You can send us your stories at stagewhisperpod at gmail.com. In a couple of weeks, we'll start incorporating your stories into each episode. So, until next time, I'm Andrew Cortez. And I'm Hope Bird. Reminding you to turn off your cell phones. Unwrap your candies. And keep talking about the theater. In a stage whisper. Thank you. If you like what you hear, please leave a five-star review, like, and subscribe. You can also find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Stage Whisper Pod. And feel free to reach out to us with your comments and personal stories at stagewhisperpod at gmail.com. Our theme song is Fox by Music for Wildlife. Other music on this episode provided by Lorenzo's Music, The Zombie Dandies, Yellow Cop, Man Bites Dog, and Billy Murray.